This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Otherworld, a New York Times bestselling YA science fiction novel from Jason Siegel and Kirsten Miller. BuzzFeed writes, Fans of Ready Player One are sure to love this addictive read. Learn more over at visitotherworld.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 284 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Jess Phoenix. She's a volcanologist, a scientist who studies volcanoes, who currently appears on the science channel show What on Earth, and she's also the co-founder of the nonprofit organization Blueprint Earth, which helps promote science and science education. Jess is also currently running for Congress in California's 25th Congressional District, north of Los Angeles, against incumbent Steve Knight. This is part of a wider movement of scientists who have been so disturbed by the Trump administration's attacks on science and scientists that it's motivated them to get involved in politics for the first time. To learn more about how you can support Jess, check out her campaign website at Jess2018.com. And to learn more about how you can support other scientists running for Congress, visit 314action.org. And today's show is brought to you by Otherworld, a new YA science fiction novel from Jason Siegel and Kirsten Miller. Kirsten Miller is the author of the acclaimed Kiki Strike books, the New York Times bestseller The Eternal Ones, and How to Lead a Life of Crime. Together with Jason Siegel, she's written four children's books, the Nightmare series, and now Kirsten and Jason have written their first YA novel, Otherworld. Jason is a well-known actor, having appeared in TV shows such as Freaks and Geeks and How I Met Your Mother and in movies such as Knocked Up, I Love You Man, and The End of the Tour, in which he played David Foster Wallace. Jason has also written or co-written films such as Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Get Him to the Greek, and The Muppets. On a recent appearance on The Tonight Show, Jason told Stephen Colbert that this new novel Otherworld is what would happen, quote, if the kids from Freaks and Geeks got sucked into Dungeons and Dragons. Jason also recently told Entertainment Weekly, quote, when I was a teenager, I was one of the lucky few who got to experience a game very much like other worlds before it was shut down. When I heard rumblings it was being reimagined for VR, I knew it was something Kirsten and I had to write about. Part mythic adventure, part sci-fi love story, entirely cautionary tale. We wanted to reach the new generation of potential players before this game becomes a reality. And here's a longer description of the book. It says... There are no screens. There are no controls. You don't just see and hear it. You taste, smell, and touch it too. In this new reality, there are no laws to break or rules to obey. You can live your best life, indulge every desire. It's a game so addictive you'll never want it to end, until you realize that you're the one being played. Welcome to other worlds, where reality is dead. Step into the future. Leave your body behind. The frightening future that Jason Siegel and Kirsten Miller have imagined is not far away. Otherworld asks the question we'll all soon be asking. If technology can deliver everything we want, how much are we willing to pay? Entertainment Weekly calls the book a potent commentary on how much we're willing to give up to the lure of technology, and Typable.com calls it a fantastic journey from start to finish. So again, the book is called Otherworld by Jason Siegel and Kirsten Miller, and you can learn more over at visitotherworld.com. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Jess Phoenix. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the first thing about you that really caught my attention was that you filmed this campaign video with Tim Russ, who played Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager. Could you just talk a little bit about how that video came about? Yeah, sure. Um, I, when you're running for office, uh, you get to meet a ton of really great people. And 
uh, through a mutual friend, I was introduced to John Billingsley um, of Star Trek Enterprise fame. And uh, John, of course, saw the correlation between my positions about issues and the Star Trek universe um, and how the, the sort of the ideals of um, Roddenberry's future matched up with with what I wanted to fight for uh, as a candidate for, for Congress. So John introduced me to a whole bunch of folks, um, Marina Sirtis, um, Gates McFadden, Jonathan Frakes, Tim Russ, um, LeVar Burton, uh, Brent oh, wow. Spiner. Yeah, so I've gotten to meet some fantastic people as a result of this. And, um, oh yeah, Aaron Eisenberg too, can't forget him. And then of course, Bob Picardo. So it's basically been like this, this realm of Star Trek folks and a lot of Star Trek fans who I've gotten to meet and know a bit through this whole process. And, uh, Tim, was the first one we wanted to record a video with because uh, the whole Vulcanologist and Vulcan connection, <laughs> uh, and plus the logic. I mean, what I I do, my whole effort is to to do things based on facts and evidence, which is very logical. So it worked out in from a Vulcan perspective. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like filming that? It looks like you had like some planes flying overhead or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we got a friend of mine uh, to, he has a tiny studio in um, what used to be the garage in his house, and he offered to let us use it for free. And of course, low budget is name of the game. So we were doing it, but he's near the Van Nuys airport. And <laughs> so there were airplanes flying overhead and, and uh, we realized that the cuts we wanted didn't quite work unless we explained why we were cutting that way. So they just, somebody thought it would be funny to include one of the parts of me just, that wasn't acting, that was me actually, <laughs> damn you planes. Like that's, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's what you do. I mean, I've, I've done filming in, you know, really remote situations and all over the world and you just kind of roll with the punches. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. When it sounds like um, the Vulcan, Vulcanologist thing comes up pretty much every time you tell someone that you're a volcanologist they make a star trek joke pretty much it's one of the first things i heard when i got into the field <laughs> <laughs> um and you said that you'll, you'll tell people like live long and prosper that's your uh, sort of standard uh, response well, you know, yeah, and the good thing is it's it's convenient because it's something I actually believe in. I do want people to live long and prosper, so I'd say it's a pretty universally okay message. <laughs> yeah. And then you filmed another one of these things with, you mentioned Robert Picardo and John Billingsley. Yes, that's right. Um, there's actually three videos that we got from that series of interviews. Um, and we had a quieter space that time, but we didn't do the whole professional lighting setup or anything, again, because budget. You know, I'd rather be spending money on um, paying people to go out and knock on doors and, and getting the word out about the campaign rather than doing a fancy, slick, big budget thing. But, uh, you know, if we had all the money in the world, then by all means, we'd have fancy, fancy studios. But uh, John and Bob were very game and uh, it was a great conversation. Well, right. So I saw the one where you were talking about healthcare. So there are other ones. As yeah, well. um, there's healthcare, and then one about science, and then one about Star Trek's values and how they align with uh, with what I'm fighting for. Oh, that's great. So I mean, yeah. So you mentioned that, yeah, that there is that sort of um, connection between Star Trek values and your values. I guess could you say a little bit more about like, did you grow up with Star Trek, or like, what kind of a Star Trek fan are you? So I, I can't say that I'm like this huge super fan because I'm not, uh, but I actually always had an appreciation for it because, uh, you know, my dad was into Star Wars as a lot of people were. Uh, and, you know, I was an 80s kid. And so Star Wars and Star Trek were both there. And my uncle Mike was very into Star Trek. And so I, you know, learned all about the stuff I knew about Star Trek from him. And he tried to make me watch it when I was probably five or six and <laughs> it sort of went over my head. Uh, and then just, you know, as I got older, 
we would watch it occasionally and I just always knew that it meant so much to him and he he just passed away last year actually uh, just about a year ago now and so it was uh it was interesting that all this happened my actual personal affiliation with Star Trek happened after he passed away because I know he just would have loved it. And uh, every time I'm hanging out with the Star Trek folks or working with them on something, I just always think about how fortunate I am because so many people would love to be in that position. And actually now I've, um, I started, I've decided I'm going to go backwards through all of the different series. So I've, I'm watching Discovery. I'm all caught up on the new, new season. Yeah, it's really good. And then I'm going to start working my way backwards. And my husband was a big uh, Next Generation fan. So he um, he had his first crush on uh, Counselor Troy, <laughs> and so I told Marina Sirtis that, and she goes, "Oh, of course, of course." <laughs> so yeah, it's it's funny. He hasn't gotten to meet her yet, but when that happens, I'm sure it'll be only awkward for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, are, are you going to film any other um, campaign videos with Star Trek actors? Uh, hopefully so. Yeah, we have um, we've had several say yes that they would be willing to do it. So um, you know, it's a matter just of scheduling, really, at this point. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to those. I also wanted to mention, too, you know, when Obama got elected, he was talking very openly about how he was a big Star Trek fan and about optimism in the future and stuff. And it was just such an exciting time. I don't know uh, if you uh, have any thoughts about that or, you know. Yeah, you know, I think it's funny because I think if you look at what Roddenberry created, I think that there, it really just is. It's full of optimism. It's full of curiosity, which is something that for several years now, when I give speeches, uh, you know, I, when I do a TEDx talk or when I uh, talk to students at a school or anything like that, um, I, I always harp on curiosity being the cure for the culture of ignorance and intolerance and hate that we see that rears its head from time to time. And so, you know, finding out when other politicians, particularly the Democratic politicians these days, say that they're into Star Trek and, and the values that it it holds, it makes perfect sense to me. It all, it again, there's very Vulcan of me, but it seems <laughs> so logical. <laughs> yeah, well, and so, yeah, so you mentioned that you're a Vulcanologist, and so we have some listener questions for you. So uh, one listener question is from Chris Brown, and he says, are there any good volcano movies or books? By good, I mean, are there any that get the science correct? Okay, that's a that's a very good clarification to make because uh yeah, a bunch of my scientist friends and I used to get together and watch bad geology movies. So, I will not recommend any of those. I will say the best movie uh that has been done that's still entertaining on uh volcanoes is the BBC special Super Volcano. And it was, it came out uh, probably 10 years ago now, and uh, you should be able to find it online somewhere, but it's really good because it's got science underpinning it. And so, you know, there's like, you know, dramatized sections, but for the most part, it's fairly accurate, like what would happen should Yellowstone erupt fairly large. So that's probably the best one because they, they really go through like the gases and the ashfall and all the different things and how it would affect people, you know, hundreds of miles away. So yeah, check out BBC's Super volcano that's probably the best advice i can give you right now well yeah and speaking of yellowstone blowing up there, there's a science fiction novel by frederick pohl called all the lives he led and the premise is basically that yellowstone explodes and basically renders the entire united states uninhabitable and people kind of become refugees to other countries is that a, a realistic scenario 
It is fairly realistic. Um, and this is where I get to be nerdy and, and throw some facts at you. But Yellowstone has erupted three times uh, that we have good records of. And the last, so it basically is every 640,000 years. So there was one eruption 1.8 million years ago, one was 1.2 million years ago, and one was 640,000 years ago. So quote unquote, we are due. That doesn't mean that it's going to happen within our lifetime, uh, fortunately. Uh, it's very, 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 very uh, like microscopic chance. Uh, that it would occur on any given day. The probability is very low. So um, most of us can relax, I would say. However, when it does erupt again, uh, it will devastate the U.S. all the way. It'll basically go east of of Wyoming, and it will go all the way to Washington, D.C. Ashfall has been found from previous eruptions all the way over in Virginia. Um, so it is, it has the potential to just be massively devastating Southern California. I mean, we wouldn't get as much ashfall, but obviously having, you know, 75% of the country, um, uh, buried under tiny rock fragments, probably. I mean, I'd say buried, but it wouldn't be like feet. It would be inches or, you know, millimeters, but still it's enough to cause serious problems. So, you know, we don't have to worry about Yellowstone killing us in Southern California, <laughs> the rest of the country. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, it really would. It would, it would completely, an eruption that size, a true supervolcano eruption, it would devastate not just the US, but the entire world. It would screw up economies all around the globe. So it's not something we want to happen anytime soon. Well, I mean, is there anything we could do about it? Because there have been headlines I've seen recently about NASA sort of coming up with ideas for things they might want to mm-hmm. do. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love it when people get all excited about geoengineering and, you know, oh, how can we stop, you know, climate change? How can we stop this? How can we stop that? And this is where my perspective as a as a geologist comes in handy. And that's that the Earth is enormous and it is way more powerful than than we are. And it's it's been around for four point five billion years and will continue to go, you know, be here long after we are uh, in whatever form. So as much as we want to think that we can, you know, influence everything, a supervolcano is going to do what a supervolcano does. <laughs> so basically, maybe we can mitigate some things for people who are nearby and help evacuate them more effectively, but you're not going to be able to stop it. I mean, there's there's nothing that's even close to being able to stop a volcanic eruption. They were talking about pumping water down into it or something like that, The Na- this NASA yeah. thing. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know the details of it, so I can't really speak like too in depth about it. But I know that, um, you know, in the past, people have tried all sorts of creative things. If you add water to a volcano, um, typically you get a type of eruption called a phreatic eruption. And those are, it, it's called, water is a volatile, like a gas or a liquid or any component that's not native to the substance that you're looking at is a volatile that's been introduced. Water is considered a volatile. And from the sound of the word, you can guess that's not <laughs> a great idea. Uh, and it basically means eruptions ha- are, are more violent if you have water in them. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not sure how much they were considering adding or where, but uh, from what I know about magma chambers and particularly Yellowstone's magma chamber, I, d- I mean, it would have to be a hell of a lot of water. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know that it's possible, I'm sure. And the funny thing is, you know, I'm sure people will be thinking about it, but I always look to the U.S. Geological Survey first because that's actually who has the most advanced volcanology um, that's, that's practical boots on the ground stuff. So if the USGS is starting to say, hey, we're trying these experiments, I'll sit up and take notice, um, you know, on this one a little bit more. NASA is wonderful, but, you know, I, I, uh, I, I like to reserve judgment until the USGS has something to say. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, so you mentioned super volcanoes, and Leslie Lewis wants to know what would be worse, super volcanoes or Siberian traps? Mm, I'm going to go with super volcanoes just because, uh, you know, it's it's sort of what I do. <laughs> <laughs> what What is a Siberian trap? Yeah, you know, I have to say I've heard the term, but I can't really say. I don't know. <laughs> so, Leslie, I'm going to have to Google that, and I would do it right now, but it will make little clicking keys on my keyboard, and that's not a good noise. So, I don't really know. But I'll just go with super volcanoes because they're basically pretty devastating. Is it something Star Trek? It might be something Star Trek that I don't know about yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yes, way to stump way to stump the experts here, Leslie. Yeah, if you don't know and I don't know, at least I feel better at me. <laughs> okay, well, she she also wants to know, why didn't the boat in Dante's Peak dissolve? Oh, yeah, okay. That's always, that's a good one, too. That one I know about. Um, so it wouldn't have dissolved just because the, the concentrations in the water, the chemical concentrations, wouldn't have been high enough. Um, however, it would have been really hot. <laughs> so I'm, I'm actually more impressed that they were able to sit in the boat. Um, it, that's a bit of science fiction, not science fact. Yeah, so maybe just to explain, if you haven't seen Dante's Peak, a volcano blows up and it makes the water nearby very hot and acidic, uh, and the boat is kind of melting, but not completely as they're as the characters are trying to escape. I would I would say, you know, knowing what I know and living in LA and knowing enough writers and such is uh it's sort of the the James Cameron reason why um why Jack died uh at the end of Titanic and Rose lived. Uh he had to die. It was in the script. So <laughs> obviously in Dante's Peak they had to live. <laughs> they were in the boat. <laughs> Um, and then Julian Roud says, uh, wants to know if you've seen Werner Herzog's film Into the Inferno. Mm, I have not seen it yet, and everybody has been telling me about it, and I would love to see it. I know, uh, I think it was Clive Oppenheimer worked on it with him, uh, and it was, from what I've heard, it's very good. Um, of course, it's Werner Herzog, so it'll be a unique experience. But, so yeah. Oh, and you know what? Okay, I did. I looked up Siberian traps. I just want to go back to this now. And, uh, yep. So it, it was a bad thing. Uh, it was, it looks like it's responsible for the Permian extinction. It was, it was the big area in Siberia that's all volcanic. Um, so it would have been huge at the time, but they're not active anymore. So there you go. So that's why. If you're saying if they were both active, uh, you know, I, I would still go super volcano because, you know, I think it's just more immediately terrifying to people. Yeah. Yo, <laughs> I so have that... to look it up. I can't not know something. And when, when someone asks me, I really want to give them an answer. But, but <laughs> yeah. no, at the time it was bad. Uh, but I think, I think now if we had Yellowstone, it would be much more damaging. Yeah. So if anyone was thinking about going to Siberia, now your vacation plan's totally fine. Nothing to worry about. Yeah, they're, they're like the Deccan traps, too, if anyone's heard of those. But yeah, okay. I, I feel better now that I'm like, okay, I know what it is. <laughs> Sorry, what's what's the, the Deccan traps? Oh, they're just in a different section. It's these large areas of, of lava flow, uh, you know, ancient lava flows. So, and the Deccan traps are down in, uh, they're, they're in near the Himalayas, actually, in near India. Hmm. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> well, so other than this BBC thing, you, are there any actual good, even just like dramatically good um, volcano movies? Because I was looking, you know, like... Dante's Peak, 26% on Rotten Tomatoes. Volcano, 46% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Pompeii, 28%. Uh, it yeah, doesn't seem no. like it's a strong... No, there, it's not. And um, if we had video right now, you'd see me rubbing my temples. <laughs> because this is a this is a sticking point um, for, for us scientists, uh, volcanologists particularly. Because everybody has it in their head that a volcano is a cone 
and it explodes and shoots like lava bombs at people from miles and miles away. And, you know, it, that's not how it works. Um, you cannot stop, like, I'm calling out the movie Volcano right now, but you cannot stop flowing lava with Jersey barricades or a bus. That doesn't work. Um, also, the La Brea tar pits cannot erupt. So, you know, just putting some fears at ease. I get that question a lot. And I just think that it's the problem with it is that not enough people are willing to go close to a volcano to film stuff. And when they when they do, there was like an there was an accident uh, in in God, it was in the I think it was early 90s when they were filming Kilauea. They were filming a cinder cone there in Hawaii um, on Kilauea volcano. And they had a helicopter crash and the people, three people in it were basically stuck in the volcano, in the cinder cone while, you know, this eruption is going on and the gases are everywhere. And they were on a ledge, I believe, that was like kind of far away from the the lava lake. So they were mostly okay. I mean, they, they were rescued. But it was, if you do go near a volcano and you don't know what you're doing, um, and even if you do, sometimes there's just this huge element of danger. And so I think that a lot of people just haven't taken the time to understand it thoroughly. I mean, there are myths about anything that's big and dangerous. Like, I mean, there are myths about lions still that persist um, and bears and things. So I think it's really just a matter of somebody who really understands the science uh, when they, when they know that like, you can't predict an eruption, you can't say, okay, the volcano is going to erupt now. Like, I mean, it makes it hard. People want to know, like, okay, it's massive, it's going off, and it's going to kill everyone. And and volcanoes don't mean to kill people. They just do. <laughs> so <laughs> it's hard to make it a villain, too. I mean, it's like any of those natural disaster movies. Like, if they go with true nature, you see, you end up seeing what you get in, in Houston or Puerto Rico. You get massive suffering, and there's not really a large chance for somebody to be a hero. But, um, you know, if you if you go with, like, dramatized natural disaster then you know you get geostorm (laughs) (laughs) which i have not seen i have not seen but i want to do it on a bad movie night i really do (laughs) yeah have you seen the core yes oh my god yes i was basically in agony through that (laughs) there there is not that stuff doesn't happen there are no giant crystal caverns under the earth's crust oh man i mean there are crystal caverns that we know about in mexico (laughs) but that's not the same so yeah, that movie made me a little crazy because I um I had I was a friend of someone who knew the writer, and so we got to go to like a, a day or two early screening, and this was in Massachusetts of all places. I don't know how we had this connection, but um I didn't know the writer, and they said after the movie, "Do you want to go meet him?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> sorry." <laughs> right now, I would be too critical. I'd have to wait. I, I was not that mature at that age either. I was just like, "Oh my god, the science was awful." But yeah, <laughs> don't worry about that. There's nothing to worry about from the core. It's fine. All right, good, good, good to know. Uh, have you seen Joe versus the volcano? I have not. I have not, and that is probably a huge oversight on my part. I apologize. Do you, do you, do you know the premise? A, a little bit, a little bit, because a lot of my friends are into it. <laughs> they like it. Yeah, well, well, so so just for listeners, so the premise is that there's a, I mean, I saw it when I was a kid, but from what I remember, there's a company and they want to do some sort of development on this tropical island where there's a volcano and the natives won't let them do it unless they have a, find a willing human sacrifice to jump into the volcano. And so they find a guy who has a, this is Tom Hanks, who has a, um, you know, uh, he, he's been given like five weeks to live or something by his doctor and he agrees to be the one who jumps into the volcano so that he can get this am- amazing vacation before he does that. Um, I'm just wondering, I mean, cause we see this a lot in movies and things that sort of like people worship the volcanoes and make sacrifices to the volcanoes and stuff. Is that a historical thing? 
Yeah, um, in a way. Uh, so there's a volcano in Chile where, you know, they've, if you look this up too, you can find pictures. Uh, they found people who had been mummified. They were young children uh, and they were brought up to the summit of this volcano and uh, they were drugged, um, ceremonially drugged, brought up this whole, it's, it's a very tall volcano. I forget how high, but it's, I think it's like, uh, I want to say it's over 14,000 feet. No problem. Um, but I don't know the exact height. Uh, but yeah, they, they took the kids up there and they left them there. And one of them actually got struck by lightning um, and has, I think she's called Lightning Girl. But then there's two other, there's, I think, a boy and another young woman. And they were sacrificed to the volcano. And uh, well, they weren't like thrown into roiling lava, but they were left on the summit because the volcanoes, even if they weren't erupting, were definitely seen as, you know, very powerful uh, forces whether they were deities or just forces of nature that depended on the culture. But, uh, you know, in Hawaii, um, Pele is the volcano goddess and, um, people are still very superstitious about Pele. I mean, they don't human sacrifice. They don't throw anybody into, you know, the volcano, but you have to be very careful not to disrespect, uh, Pele. And that is something actually that's, it, it intersects with actual science too, in that, you know, I am very careful when I go to work on volcanoes around the world that I try to learn something about the, the local history and culture and customs because I don't want to be disrespecting somebody else's culture and, uh, and something that held a lot of weight for people a long time ago. You know, I can still do my work and be respectful of, of the history of the area. So I always really try to prioritize that. So like in Chile, when they're bringing the bodies up and leaving them on, on the volcano, is that in the belief that that'll prevent the volcano from erupting or is there like more to it than that? You know, I can't remember if they were going through like a famine or a drought or something or a war at the time, but typically um, they uh, cultures would only do extreme things like that if there was a real pressing need. Um, and I, I mean, I don't think most of the time you want to uh, sacrifice people. You know, you, you need people in your society. But yeah, uh, yeah that one specifically, um, the volcano is, it's Yuyayako. So I know that's going to be really hard for people to, that's why I wasn't saying the name of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just just Google it. You'll find out all about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll tell you how to spell it in case people do want to Google it. Um, it's L-L-U-L-L-A-I-L-L-A-C-O. So in Spanish, Yuyayako. <laughs> well, if you're speaking English and don't know any Spanish, it's Lolola. <laughs> but no, they um, but they were Incan, and so you know the Inca people, they you know they have a lot of different uh, traditions, and so I, I don't know exactly what that one correlated with. I'm more interested in the volcano itself, but you know I think this volcano. You know, I said it's over 14. It's got it's got to be thinking about where it is in Chile. It's got to be over 20,000 feet. So it's I mean it's a huge it's a huge volcano. I don't know the exact you know, height, but somebody I'm sure will be Googling it as I'm talking and will know then. But, uh, but yeah, I think if people are really interested in archaeology, there is an intersection. Um, especially like if you think about, uh, how many archaeological artifacts were preserved in the eruption of Pompeii, um, you know, and, and well, not the eruption of Pompeii, the eruption of Vesuvius that buried Pompeii and Herculaneum, uh, back in 79 AD. That, I mean, there are full bodies that were preserved in ash. Um, there's, you know, all sorts of mosaics and, and art and pottery and clothing. And I mean, it's amazing. So if, you know, it's a cool thing when sciences intersect, it makes me really happy. There seem to be a lot of volcanoes with inordinately difficult to pronounce names. You were talking about this one. It's like in Iceland or something. It was. Oh God, I can't even do that one. My friends, some of my friends who've worked on it can, I don't know. <laughs> it begins with an E. I can basically spell it properly, but I can't, I can't. I mean, my pronunciation's so bad. Uh, <laughs> 
people call it, oh, they call it like E something. I forget yeah, what. E15? Like e15, yeah. yeah. I was about to say E15. So that's a lot easier for those of us who haven't like embedded it in our brains because we're working with it. But like I said, when I do go work on a place, I, you know, I learn the name. Uh, like I've worked on El Reventador Volcano, which is in Ecuador, which looks like Reventador, if you're going to say it very Anglo. And, uh, you know, I speak Spanish. So all the Spanish ones are way easier for me <laughs> than the ones in other languages. <laughs> but, but we try, you know, you got to try if you're working on it. And, uh, you know, if I had time, I would learn every volcano in the world that was active's name. That would be like something to do if I was like retired and had nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah. Did you see uh, Moana? That has kind of like a volcano monster yeah, in yeah. it. Yeah, I did see it. I saw it on an airplane. So I only sort of remember it because I think I was really groggy, but it was cute. It was really cute. <laughs> so how scientifically accurate was the volcano monster? Um, not very. <laughs> Sorry, Disney. Um, no, but, but, you know, Maui, I thought it was really cool because I, I started out my career in volcanology working on Hawaii, on the big island. And, uh, you know, Maui is one of the islands there in Hawaii. And he is, he's a demigod, um, in Hawaiian culture. And, you know, Pele is the volcano goddess. So Maui is, Maui and Pele would fight and things. They would get in like brother sister squabbles. Um, but it was interesting to see him personified. I thought that was really cool. Um, it was about time we got some, uh, some Hawaiian and Polynesian representation there for, for kids' movies. I know Lilo and Stitch was great too, but I liked this one because I think it focused a little bit more, had a little bit more of that indigenous culture to it. Um, even if it wasn't 100% accurate, it, I thought it was cool. Yeah. Well, so, so tell us, why are you, uh, sort of, how did you, how did, how did it come about that you're leaving behind all the awesome volcano stuff you've been doing and running for Congress? Well, um, you know, I love what I do. Absolutely love it. I mean, I get to film TV shows and, you know, I get to travel to cool places. And my nonprofit that I founded um, that teaches environmental science research to um, college students while doing conservation work is amazing. Like, I absolutely love what I do. So people are people are like, were you always going to be a politician? And I and I always say, no, I was not even thinking about this until Trump was elected. And uh when I, I had been paying attention to what he was saying, as, you know, even though I didn't want to all throughout the campaign, and what I thought he would do in terms of um, getting rid of environmental protections and really just, um, you know, basically undermining the efforts that we've been making towards preparing for climate change, uh, the environmental issues really just, it seemed like a clear and present danger that would happen once he was in office. And he definitely has not disappointed. I mean, his appointment of Scott Pruitt to head the EPA and Ryan Zinke um, to head the Interior Department. I mean, these guys are basically gutting every environmental protection that existed. You know, streams and watershed protections, um, you know, saying that coal mining companies don't have to, um, you know, be careful where they dump their waste products. I mean, there are so many environmental rollbacks that they've already done that haven't even been getting press because of everything else that's been going on that you know, we need scientists to step up and take an active role in government. I mean, it's scientists have not been active in government and, and in politics, I should say, um, since Robert Oppenheimer was persecuted, um, you know, back when the House Un-American Activities Committee was a thing, you know, in response to Cold War, all that. And so scientists sort of said, you know what, we're going to focus on doing our research because otherwise we won't get grant money. And so that's what happened. We all the scientists who kind of put our heads down and got to work and uh, and didn't really chime in with our political stances. And now I think that 
you know, scientists are, even if they're not, you know, they don't have to be hundred percent liberal, hundred percent conservative. In fact, a lot of people fall in between, you know, aren't completely polarized. Um, I think that people are just understanding now that if you don't speak up and make your voice heard, you don't have a voice. And so science will not be present in this administration. That's for sure. Um, and it, it's not, you know, we, it's a trend we have to stop now. We can't let this continue. Well, right. And so Trump is terrible on the environment, obviously, and Scott Pruitt and so on. But this guy you're running against, Steve Knight, has a grand score of zero uh, from the League of Conservation Voters. Yes, yes. And that's actually that's the second part of it. I guess I gave you the federal the the big uh, the big picture view. But yeah, the more granular view is that, you know, where I live in Southern California, I'm in the northern part of L.A. County and uh, it's the last Republican held district in L.A. County. And the guy who has it, Steve Knight, um, yeah, with, aside from getting a 0% score on his environmental voting record from the League of Conservation Voters, it's interesting to note, actually, that he got worse. Um, he actually had, when he was in the state assembly, he had a score of 4% from L.A. <laughs> and so he got worse. He went from 4% to 0 Steve, you're uh, slipping there. Yeah, and I, there's you can't get worse than 0 So I, you know, it, it's basically... <laughs> Um, John Billingsley actually used a really funny quote. And so now I've been, I've been borrowing it, but he said, uh, when he was talking to people about why he supports me in my run for Congress, he said, well, even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's like, Steve, get it right. Um, but you know, yeah, Knight, in addition to that, in addition to his terrible environmental record, um, you know, he voted for Trump care, you know, the, the new Trump health care to get rid of Obamacare. And yeah, we need to fix the affordable care act, but getting completely rid of it was highly unpopular because in our district alone, about 60,000 people would lose health insurance. So it was like, he's voting to cut health insurance from our neighbors. And that, that to me, that's just, you can't excuse that. And then of course, now he supports, he was one of the people in California who voted um, yes on the, the the house tax bill that just happened, uh, the vote that just happened last week. And it's just like, you can't, that hurts so many people in our community. I mean, 33% of people uh, here use the state and local income tax, the the, the deduction, and then that's going to go away. So they're going to be hit with thousands more dollars in tax liability. So it's, he's actually working only for himself and for the GOP leadership. And that's, He's also voted 98% with Trump since the election. So that should tell people that he's not listening to us. Our district actually voted for Hillary Clinton over Trump by 7%. So in a district that went for a Democrat, he is voting like straight down the line, basically as Republican as you can get, which means that more than half of us aren't having a voice in D.C. And that's not right. Yeah. No, and I totally agree with this project of getting more scientists into government. I mean, my parents are both scientists. And so I know a lot of scientists and I know that they would be doing a much better job than so many of the people who are in government right now. And, um, you know, it's interesting, actually, a couple months ago, I interviewed Bill Nye about his new book. And he was making the point that we don't really think about this so much, but that so many of the founding fathers were scientists. And Mm -hmm. that part of the reason that the American project has gone as well as it has is because the country was founded with these sort of rational scientific values. Yeah. I mean, that's why we have separation of church and state. And I mean, we had Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. And I mean, these guys are by no means angels, but they were very into learning about the world around us and and spreading knowledge and basically discovering all that we could. And I think that sort of fact-driven attitude has really set us up for 
uh, a lot more success as a country than we would have had otherwise. And so, I, I mean, I'm in complete agreement with that. Plus, I mean, he's Bill Nye. Of course he's <laughs> <laughs> Well, right. And you were mentioning climate change. And I feel like there's, there's so many people who think that climate change is like some sort of hoax or a conspiracy or something. And, and as I'm saying, since I know so many scientists, I just know how ridiculous this is. And, you know, just the idea that every scientific organization on Earth, every country on Earth has signed on to the Paris Accords, except with one notable exception. Just the, I, you know, that's some hoax. That's, you know, a, a conspiracy of such scope as to just be preposterous beyond all imagination. Yeah. And, you know, my parents are FBI agents, so I have the government background. Uh, and then I'm, I'm the scientist. I'm the weird one in the family. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, I, I love it when people try to tell me that I'm paid off and I'm like, by <laughs> run a nonprofit, I don't draw a salary. Like I literally have student loans left, right and center. Like this is not something that you do. You don't say, Hey, look, I've studied climate science. Like I've actually studied the change in climate, which I have. Um, I've studied it in Peru. I've studied it in Wyoming. I've studied it in Hawaii. Like this is happening. And to say that, you know, we're doing this because we're getting paid off or something. And I'm like, no. And to anyone who thinks that government grants are a payoff, most of the grant money goes towards preparing for an expedition if you're a field scientist or running lab tests if you're doing lab work. It does not go towards paying your salary, buying your house, paying, you know, you know paying your mortgage. It doesn't do that. And a lot of the work is done by grad students. So it's not, I mean, trust me, nobody's getting rich off of this. And, uh, you know, it is, it is, to my mind, it is the biggest threat to national security in our lifetimes. And that's, you know, yes, we have terrorism and all sorts of other things that threaten our national security. It's just that climate is going to make it all worse. So it's like the underlying danger. And so like you're going to see increased like when, when you have areas that are becoming uninhabitable. Like there was a great article about how Phoenix is likely to become uninhabitable by 2050. Um, so sorry, Arizona. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, and, and so like, like things like that, when you have whole metropolitan areas that people can no longer live in, like say, you know, say New Orleans floods again and, you know, becomes completely unlivable or areas of Florida, uh, you're going to see people moving to new areas. So you're going to have people who are migrating due to climate. People are going to be squashed in in places that they weren't living near others before, which will exacerbate, you know, tensions. And if you're in areas of the world uh, where there's violent unrest, um, due, you know, due to terror, etc., you're going to see more problems. Uh, and then, of course, food security will become more of an issue because we're going to have to figure out how to feed more people in less space with fewer resources uh, due to this climate change. So, you know, to me, if we don't address this, like we're not only right now just sort of going, ah, forget you, you know, green technology and sustainable development. We're basically saying, sorry, kids, sorry, grandkids, sorry, great grandkids, screw you. Um, you know, we don't care how we're leaving the planet for you. Good luck. <laughs> and that's we can't do that. To me, you just can't do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that really strikes me about so many of the climate denial people is that they have it's almost like the climate denial is an article of faith and they're forever searching for a rationalization for it. And you can shoot down one thing after another after another, and they keep coming up with new things um, that are clearly not their real motivation. You know, I don't know if you've heard that the latest thing since since all their arguments have been shot down there, they've gone on to this thing like, oh, no, but if we took all the money that we would spend on climate mitigation and spent it on mosquito nets instead, that would save more lives. So we should do that. You know, it's just like so oh <laughs> tenuous. I know, I know. And I mean, but you know what I have to say to that is my argument is follow the money. 
Um, and if you actually, there's a really good book. I haven't read it yet, but it was recommended to me by uh, Bill Prady, uh, who co-created Big Bang Theory. Um, and he's one of the supporters for my campaign. Uh, but he said, read Merchants of Doubt. Or I guess there's a documentary, so I might watch that. Um, it, it, I may have more time to watch hmm. a documentary than read a book right now, which is sad. Uh, but hey, running for Congress. Um, but yeah, apparently Merchants of Doubt explains how the uh, tobacco industry folks, you know, the, the marketers basically set it up to tell people that cigarettes don't hurt you, they don't cause cancer. And then those same people are behind this climate denial orchestration. So, um, you know, t- if you look at the tobacco industry, you can see that it was a hoax for profit. And the people right now who have a vested interest in saying, don't move on to green tech, are the fossil fuel industry. So we are looking at, if you want to, you want to follow the money, don't look at starving grad students. They don't have any. I've been one. <laughs> um, look at the fossil fuel industry that's going, uh, our stranglehold on energy is slipping. So, you know, when we have clean green technology that is more sustainable and if we can get that and scale it out to everybody who needs it, then they're out of business. And that's rough when you've got a lot of money invested in something. But unfortunately, you know, I like to tell people the um, horse and buggy, you know, the buggy manufacturers, uh, they didn't do so hot uh, when the car came into being. So everything has its time. And I think we are at a point as a global civilization where we need to be looking um, to green solutions for the future and to prepare for climate change. Because we, if we don't dramatically cut our carbon output um, and fossil fuel consumption, we are going to be up a creek without a paddle. Right. And my impression, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but my impression is that the fossil fuel industry has spent all this money on PR in the United States. But so that's just why you have conservatives in America not believing in climate science, where, you know, there are conservatives all over the world, but everywhere else they're on board because they haven't been subjected to the same misinformation campaign. Yes. Yes, you were right. Um, and that's the thing is it shouldn't be a partisan issue. It's, it's just like environmental issues didn't used to be partisan. I mean, Reagan was a very green friendly dude for the most part. I mean, he was governor of California and, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't partisan. People have actively been working to divide, uh, because when you polarize people, you can, you can get them agitated about things that they wouldn't be otherwise. So again, it's all follow the money. And I know I sound sort of like conspiratorial, but it, I'm not. It's, it's just basic economics. You know, who stands to profit? And the green industry is not to the point yet where it's some giant cabal, um, but the fossil fuels industry pretty much is, uh, especially if you look at um, profits and, you know, basically they're billionaires. There's a, a bunch of billionaires who don't want to lose what they've got. And, you know, fine, but you've got to recognize the fact that things are changing and you cannot stop progress. You mentioned that your parents are Republicans. Are they, how do they feel about Trump and about climate and stuff like that? Well, you know, um, my dad is uh, trying to be respectful of, of his president uh, and, you know, that's fine. Uh, but my mom is, is more um, critical of it. And I think we, they just don't talk about it that much. But my dad was, was very much into like, oh, climate change isn't real, you know, a few years back. And I would say, Dad, I'm the scientist. Like, I went to school for this. There's no conspiracy. But then, you know, I'm really encouraged because, um, you know, on his Facebook page, he shared something that I did, one of the media appearances that I had. And, you know, I think maybe it was when I was on CNN International talking about, you know, why we need scientists in government and uh, earth scientists in particular. And uh, somebody on his page said, oh, John, it's just a conspiracy, you know, follow the money. And my dad was like, well, 
you know, my daughter's not getting paid off for this. So, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I think there's something to it. I know she sincerely, you know, she stands firm in her convictions or something to that effect. And so I think he's starting to see that, you know, I'm not saying this for my health. I'm saying this for the health of the entire planet, you know, and I don't get paid off for it. That's for sure. And I, I don't know any scientist who's sitting there like in the lap of luxury for saying climate change is real. <laughs> Well, well, right. And just as I was saying, just knowing scientists, the idea that you would go to school for so long and devote your life to, you know, learning these ideas and spreading these ideas and then just like, you know, go, you know, go back on all of that, yeah. even if you were getting offered money, like is, is something like like such a small percentage of scientists would you ever dream of. It's just so preposterous. Well, I know. And, and the other thing is, too, that when you're you know, when you're a scientist, the whole point of being a scientist, and I tell everybody this too, we are all born as scientists. Like when we come out of the womb, we are making observations and we are testing things. And of course, obviously it gets gets easier to test uh, your hypotheses out as you get a little older and you can move around on your own. But I mean, even if you think about it as a little kid, you're like, hmm, that grass looks tasty. I believe that it is tasty. I'm going to eat it. You put it in your mouth, you eat it, and you go, ugh, it doesn't taste good. <laughs> You're testing a hypothesis. I mean, so we're all born as scientists, and we have so many questions, and we want to know why the sky is blue and, and why the grass is green and tastes bad uh, and, you know, all those things. But as we get older, it gets squeezed out of us, and we get told, you know, oh, be practical, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, you know, what scientists are doing is tapping into that innate human curiosity and saying, what is real? What is true? And how do I find that? And so that's really all doing science is. It's saying, let's find something that we think might be true, and then let's try to prove or disprove it. And really, in reality, you're trying to disprove it primarily. And if you end up proving it, you go, oh, wow. You know, I mean, so it's just a process. The scientific method is a process that we use to understand the world better. It's not a process to make anybody rich or to prove that you're right. It really is all about just wondering for the sake of wondering. <laughs> so if there are scientists listening to this and they're listening to you and they're saying, hmm, maybe I might want to run for Congress, help fight this stuff. What, what, do, what have you learned sort of in this process that you would want other people in, in that situation to know? Well, my caveat would be um, we are at an inherent disadvantage, uh, most scientists. There are some who have gotten fairly wealthy from patenting their discoveries. But for most of the scientists, particularly Earth scientists who I know, um, your biggest disadvantage will be that you don't have a massive built-in donor network. Um, because scientists haven't been politically active. So if I were to call up, and I'm, I've done this, if I were to call up 10 or 20 or 50 of my scientific colleagues and say, hey, donate to my campaign – they're not used to doing that. Uh, lawyers are used to donating to other lawyers running for office. And same goes for business people because they make up 80 plus percent of, of Congress right now. Um, there's one physicist in Congress, Bill Foster in Illinois, and that's it. <laughs> so, um, you know, you can see we have a hard road to hoe, but also just something that I learned that I never, ever expected was that less than 1% of U.S. adults donate politically. So the 1% is not rich people. The 1% is people who donate to candidates because those candidates are the ones who end up on the ballot. So if you really want to say in putting people in office and in actually how the government goes, you've got to donate. And that that could mean, I mean, I know a lot of people don't have extra money, but that means $5 here, $10 there, or if you can spare it, $500, $1,000. You know, I mean, it's it all depends on your own financial resources, but 
find candidates you like and back them and back them early because people don't know how the process works. I've had this really up close and personal view of the process and how ugly it is. And until we get people in who are willing to reform our campaign finance laws, um, we are going to have this system that is just a money machine. And you have so much dark money involved that, you know, since they, since Citizens United passed and um, they decided that corporations are people, corporations get to throw, you know, basically Boku bucks at candidates that they like. And, uh, and the candidates don't get the money directly, so it's never fully disclosed. So that is a real problem because you don't know who is pumping money behind these big candidates. So vote for people you think are going to bring integrity to the election process and put your dollars behind them, too. Because as scientists, I mean, we haven't been active. And like I said, we have to be. Are you in touch with other scientists who are running for office and kind of sharing information and stuff like that? Yes, actually. Um, there are several around the country who I've met at various events. And, uh, and, you know, that's pretty much been what I'm saying is what we've all experienced, which is that it is so hard for us to build a donor base, um, particularly if you're in the earth sciences or like if you're a lab scientist who hasn't patented something or, you know, it's it's rough. It's really rough. Um, so we're all out there fighting an uphill battle, uh, like in my race in particular, my opponent, Steve Knight, he has um, he got a, a Paul Ryan. Uh, you know, Speaker of the House said that he would spend a million dollars from his super PAC um, on on keeping Knight in office. So up there, it was already, hey, Jess, this guy's already got a million dollars in the bank. What are you going to do? <laughs> and then uh, and then another PAC that is, uh, I forget their name. It's like Americans for something, something. Uh, but they have pledged $500,000. So it's already $1.5 in the race. And this race is probably going to cost $4 million on each side. And, and that just uh, makes me crazy. And that's true around the country. I mean, some races are more expensive, some are cheaper, but there is just a massive amount of money that's being thrown at this. So if you want to get out there as a scientist and make your voice heard, go to a local club meeting for, if you're a Democrat, go to a Democratic club. If you're a Republican, go to a Republican club. Uh, but get out there and, and speak up, speak for the truth, be a voice and say, go out canvassing, go phone banking, go write postcards, call your representatives. Just get engaged. Don't think that someone else will, because nobody will. It's on us. It's on every single one of us voting age Americans to preserve what our country has that makes it so special. There's an organization like, is it like 314.org or something like that? Yeah, 314 Action. Uh, they're a pack that supports scientists who are interested in running so they can help with advice and and uh, connecting you with people and, and uh, publicizing what you're doing. And, and they helped me out a lot at the beginning of the campaign. Um, they were very helpful. Are there specific other candidates like scientists that you have met that you are endorsing or want, think people should look more into or something? Oh, well, I would say, um, you know, you, you could just Google right now, scientists running for office. And there's so many different lists. Um, not one of them, I don't think captures everyone. I'm finding out about new people running for office every day. Um, there's, oh my gosh, there's a, a geographer who's running in, an, in California's fourth district. Uh, she's really great. There's a science, a couple science candidates in Orange County, California. There's an, an in New Mexico, there's a, uh, his last name is Dingy, D-I-N-G-E, or maybe it's Dinge. I actually don't, I didn't ask him <laughs> how you said it. Um, but there's, there's, um, there's a doctor in Texas, Jason Weston. He's really great. Um, there's a, a nurse and scientist uh, in Arizona who's running. Um, she, gosh, 
I wish I had all their names handy. I didn't get a list ready, but um, but they are they're great. And just look look it up uh, because you will find that the science candidates uh, they are going to be in favor of uh, things that are scientifically proven to work. Uh, that's the one thing I've seen that unites all of us. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And yeah, I really it would be just such an amazing thing for this country if we had. 80% scientists and 20% lawyers or something in Congress. Um, you know, I mean, just <laughs> yeah, I mean, because people will say things which, which make me, it makes me like, oh, you don't understand how it works because people don't. I mean, they think that the lawmakers, like if you elected me tomorrow, that I would be in DC and I'd spend all my time writing laws. No, no, sadly, that's not how it works. Um, what, what really happens is that you have a whole staff that does all the research into the issues. Like they know your position on something, but the staff members do the burden of the, the bulk of the writing of things. Um, because the system that we have, especially if you're in Congress, not the Senate, um, if you're in the House, uh, sorry, the House, not the Senate, if you're in the House, your elections come every two years. So as soon as you get elected, you're back to fundraising again uh, to maintain your seat and then, you know, to get better positions and to get more authority. So this is the way the system works right now. And it basically sets it up so that, yeah, you're, you're voting on things and you're making speeches, but you're not doing the bulk of the writing. So when people say, oh, well, we need a lawyer in there because they know, understand the law. I'm like, well, you know, any reasonable scientist should be able to read something legal, a legal briefing, a legal document and understand it because we read and understand extremely complex scientific papers and we write them too. So it's not like it's something that doesn't transfer. Uh, It does. And uh, scientists would make great legislators for that reason. You have a support staff, you have um, people you can ask, and there are always going to be lawyers in government. That's just a given. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I have some uh, another listener question, actually two from Ted Vishen. He wants to know what you think about geoengineering. Ah, yes, good question. Uh, so geoengineering, I kind of mentioned it before. Um, it is really interesting to me. Um, my nonprofit, Blueprint Earth, uh, we are actually attempting to recreate Earth's environments in controlled settings. So we are saying replicate lava flows, replicate you know storms and and the sun and. So, you know, I think it's it's got a lot of potential geoengineering in terms of like, you know, let's let's put stuff in the atmosphere to block the sun, to reduce climate change, you know, reduce the warming effects like eh, I'm I'm more skeptical about that. Um, You know, if it's a one off thing that we deploy to solve an immediate crisis, like, oh, we're going to engineer, you know, something so that the hurricane changes course. okay. Um, but if it's like, let's do something that's trying to impact the whole planet, I'm a little more skeptical of that because, you know, and in safety of that, uh, mainly because the earth is a pretty amazing system and it's gotten along so well, um, you know, before us and in spite of us in recent years um, that I, I just hesitate to make large global scale changes, but like small geoengineering projects, I'm like, let's, let's see how those go and let's see what we can do, uh, you know, in terms of of understanding how the environment functions, each environment, micro environments as well, how they function as systems. Once we have that knowledge, then we'll be able to better understand what we can do uh, to help shape the environment around us. I mean, because big volcanoes blowing up does cool the earth, right? That's sort of the uh, logic behind some of these proposals. Yeah, well, um, you know, ash, ash does blanket things. And yeah, it can lead to, uh, you know, a temperature drop uh, for a year or two that that does happen. Uh, and we've seen that happen in the past. So 
I think that's where they, you know, they get the idea of, oh, if this happens, then we could do this. But, um, you know, it has consequences. All of those things have consequences and some of them are negative. So you always have to kind of say, do we fully understand the implications for the action that we're taking? Um, like I know in Hawaii in, you know, around World War II era, they tried to stop an eruption of, well, a lava flow from Mauna Loa, a volcano, the world's largest. They tried to bomb the lava flow because it was approaching the town of Hilo. It didn't work. Uh, you can't use a plane to drop bombs on a lava flow and have it work. But like, think about why, it. why did they think that would work? Uh, I think they thought they could divert it, you know, just change uh-huh. the flow of it. But, you know, it, it, you know, the lava doesn't care. And so I think also that would have impacts. Like if you decide, oh, we're going to drop a nuke into a volcano or something. I mean, that's, I've heard people suggest that. And, uh, I'm not making that one up. That's one I've heard. Uh, you know, as yeah, part of a geoengineering or to yeah, destroy. Like saying, oh, yeah. We could stop it from blowing up. And I'm like, no, no, that's not, you know, that, that doesn't work. I mean, and think about the consequence, right? Nuclear weapons, it's easy to visualize a consequence, but things that we do that aren't like, say, radioactive. We don't always know if we say, let's reshape this watershed for X reason. Like we don't know if like, say if there's a, you know, a microbial organism that then gets, you know, it gets driven extinct by that. Then you wonder, okay, what are the the carry on effects through the rest of the environment? So that's like, that's what my nonprofit's actually trying to do is understand everything from microbes to, to the atmosphere in a given environment and how it's all connected. Because I think if we don't understand, like if we don't have scientists from different fields talking to each other, like if we don't have biologists giving input to the atmospheric folks, giving input to the geologists and giving input all of them to the engineers, like we don't have a full comprehensive picture of how the planet functions as a series of systems. So that to me is, is primary. You get that understanding and then you can start to go and say, Oh, well, let's, it's like, you know, we know how to build a car and that's why we're able to change the paint on it or change the tires or, you know, tint the windows until you understand how the car works fully. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do all that because you're too busy going, well, do we have brakes? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, see, and then Ted Vishen also wanted to know kind of what you think about settling the solar system. I guess I'll just add in there. Are there any volcanoes elsewhere in the solar <laughs> system that you would want to visit? Oh, my God. I'm so into Venus uh, because Venus is full of volcanoes and everybody wants to go to Mars. And I'm the one here going, let's figure out how to go to Venus. But this is clearly why they don't have me running NASA. But uh, <laughs> I would love to. I'm just saying, I know we could replace the guy who's but, in I there mean, now. You, could you get anywhere near those volcanoes? Or, I mean, the uh, atmosphere would crush you, right? Yeah, not with the technology we've got now. So we would need some advances. But I think that that same answer rings true for going anywhere else in the solar system or outside of it is we just don't have the tech yet. And so, you know, we're in a phase where we can see where we want to go, which is awesome, but we have to figure out the steps we need to get there. And so that's why I'm like a huge supporter of funding science. We got to fund the NSF. We've got to fund NASA. We've got to fund the National Institutes of Health. I mean, all of the things that scientists are doing are basically setting the stage for us to explore the rest of the universe and to explore the ocean more fully because we haven't explored it fully enough yet. And, you know, I, I did my master's thesis on an undersea volcano. And just for me to think that, like, I got to map a part of an undersea volcano that nobody had ever studied before and I was identifying features that nobody even knew existed, I mean, that blows my mind uh, because it's me, you know, I'm here, it's 2017. I'm like, how did I do this? How is this still left to explore? There is still so much out there that we need to learn about. So I think we'll get there at some point. I just, I don't, I'm I'm hesitant to think that we'll actually succeed in colonizing, you know, another place, meaning we have established, uh, you know, a population that is stable in another place. Uh, But in my lifetime, it'd be cool. But, (laughs) you know, and I think, I think we should be exploring it. I think, 
you know, pressing, you know, pushing the boundaries of what we can do as a, as a human species is essential. I mean, that's sort of who we are. So we need to answer that call and like see where we can go. And we should do it in ways that aren't destructive. You know, that was kind of the issue with Manifest Destiny here in the U.S. You know, let's push to the West Coast and take over everything and destroy everything in our path. We need to not do that when we go out and we go to other worlds. We need to always be looking for other other life forms and and the natural features of those worlds so that, you know, they're still there for people to enjoy, um, you know, in, in a couple hundred years, hopefully, or maybe a thousand years. Who knows? Yeah. So what is your position on increased funding for science fiction podcasts? <laughs> yes, yes, please. <laughs> I mean, come on, this stuff is awesome. And I mean, this is like, if you think about Star Trek in, in specific, um, they actually came up with, uh, I think it was, I think it was MRIs because of that. They wanted something that could scan your body, uh, and tell you what was going on inside. And then that gave people the idea to develop that technology. So this is something that science fiction can blaze trails for science fact. So yeah. By all means, fund science fiction podcasts. I am in favor. <laughs> all right. Well, you've got my vote. Yeah. Well, we need to keep funding the National Endowment for the Arts because that's where you guys could get grants from. And uh, if we don't <laughs> fund that, then there's no hope. Uh, you know, it's all listener supported at that point and advertising supported, I guess. So, yeah, if we could get some government funding for you guys to expand people's minds, why not? Right. <laughs> that sounds good to me. OK, so we're uh, we're pretty much out of time. So do you want to just give people more information about yeah, how can they find your nonprofit? How can they find your campaign website? That kind of stuff. Sure. Um, and if people are out there listening who are um, college or grad students, you know, university or, or grad students, by all means, go check out blueprintearth.org because that's our field research nonprofit. So you can get hands on field research. If you can get to L.A. or Vegas, it's no cost to the student. Uh, and we do that because we want to level the playing field. A lot of field experiences are very expensive and we don't think it needs to be that way. Um, so blueprintearth.org for my Congress stuff. Uh, my Congress website is jess2018.com. And so jess2018.com. And uh, you can, I also have a website for my, just my science stuff. So if you just want to have me come give a talk somewhere or something, go to volcanojess.com. And then I'm on uh, Facebook uh, slash, it's facebook.com slash jessphx, like the Phoenix airport code. There we go. And then I'm on Twitter as, I mean, I've got my Volcano Jess Twitter. I don't really use that right now since I'm running for Congress, but that's my personal one. My Congress run one where I get very political, as you would imagine, is <laughs> at Jess Phoenix 2018. So J-E-S-S-P-H-O-E-N-I-X 2018. And uh, I'm on Instagram too. Volcano Jess official is my personal one. And Jess Phoenix 2018 is my camp congressional one. So there you go. Now you have plenty of ways to find me on the <laughs> internet. <laughs> All right, great. Well, so this has, been, this has been so much fun. And so we've been speaking with Jess Phoenix. And so Jess, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. This has been awesome. And uh, I, you know, I wish everybody the best. This is great. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Jess Phoenix for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including J. Sal Adkins, who writes, This is the best podcast with creators in sci-fi and fantasy. The host is extremely knowledgeable and asks great questions. Favorite episode is with Kazuo Ishiguro, who was later awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. Coincidence? I'll leave that to you to decide. So big thanks again to J. Sal Adkins for that great review. Special thanks as well to William Cusick, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. 
And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Galina Fredkina, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. Galina writes, Thank you for a fantastic podcast from a fan of Neil Gaiman and Dirk Gently. So big thanks again to Galina and to everyone else who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Jason Siegel and Kirsten Miller for sponsoring today's show. Check out their new novel, Otherworld, over at visitotherworld.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.